to start off this morning's studies, I would like to uh, read Psalm 146. The heading for this psalm in my Bible is the God of compassion. Hallelujah, my soul, praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing to my God as long as I live. Do not trust in nobles, in man who cannot save. When his breath leaves him, he returns to the ground. On that day, his plans die. Happy is the one who, whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord, his God, the maker of heaven and earth. The sea and everything in them remains, remains faithful forever, executing justice for the exploited and giving food for the hungry. The Lord frees the prisoners and he opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises up those who are oppressed. He loves the righteous. The Lord protects foreigners. He helps the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever. Zion, your God, remains for all generations. Praise you, God, for you reign. So the psalm writer is talking about his honor for the reality of his salvation. And he's, he knows that God is going to be a protector and um, the giver of all things good for those who are righteous. Even though he does give good things to those who travel this way and are, have not yet heard the word, he is still the God to be praised. Okay, so for this morning's study, let's go to the book of James, chapter 2. Uh, these come off of the pointed text for the day. James, chapter 2, and we're going to go to verse 13, starting from the first verse. My brothers, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in your glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For example, a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor man dressed in dirty clothes also comes in. You look with favor on the man wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place. Yet you say to the poor man, stand over there or sit here on the floor by my footstool. Haven't you discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, didn't God choose the poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you dishonored that poor man. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Don't they blaspheme the noble name that was pronounced over you at your baptism? Indeed, if you are the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show favoritism, you commit sin, and you are convicted by the law as a transgressor. For whoever keeps the entire law yet fails in one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he said, do not commit adultery. He also said, do not murder. So if you commit adultery, but you do not murder, you are a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who will be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy. And to the one who hasn't shown mercy, God, tri mercy triumphs over judgment. What is this sin of favoritism? 
Well, we read this and we see, it says, my brothers, do not show favoritism as you hold on to your faith in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. So we have faith. We come to church and we're, we're considered righteous under the, under the law of the gospel. We have our sins forgiven and we believe that. But what happens in this particular instance that James is talking about? For example, a, a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor man dressed in dirty clothes also comes in. Now, according to the reading that I did on this particular scripture in James chapter 2, what James is talking about in this scripture is the fact that this is a church meeting, like the annual meeting. This is a meeting where the Jews would get together in their congregation not for a sermon but for a meeting maybe perhaps to uh, decide something important maybe perhaps to decide something about the congregation that 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 they wanted to take place so this was an a meeting so even in this sense uh, James is talking to these people here saying that those who come into your meetings and you know them to be less in stature or less in wealth than you are, if you consider yourself better, or you put this man, what he has to say in the meeting, for example, with lesser emphasis, if you will, the way that you hear this man, you are showing a sin of favoritism. This is not, this is not right, according to James. So we discriminate. I think it's very human. I think if we looked at our own selves and looked at, at many of the situations that we've been in where we have felt that there are people who are discriminatory. They discriminate against us for whatever reason they have at that particular moment and for that particular meeting. So God is, is the God of judgment also when he sees us, how we act and how we conduct ourselves what does he say here though if you look at with favor on the man wearing fine clothes and say sit here in a good place and yet you say to the poor man stand over there or sit here on the floor by my footstool haven't you discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts evil thoughts so just because we think we're better and we think someone is lesser James is saying here through, the gospel, through this gospel message that we are becoming people with evil thoughts. So you see that we are left without any hope as far as how we act in our righteousness even. When we look at someone else and we think that, oh, we make an instant observation about who this person is, and we think, oh, there's a person that I probably don't even want to hang around with. There's a person that has, I mean, look at the way he's dressed. I mean, he doesn't even care. He comes with dirty clothes. We're making a judgment. So that judgment is not necessarily to the poor man with the dirty clothes or the person that is less in stature than you are. That judgment is against you. He says, listen, my brothers, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? This is also saying is that it's probably more likely that a person who doesn't have much in this world can look to Jesus 
and take him on and be very faithful to him because of the fact that he has been blessed. His stature doesn't matter to Jesus. His stature does not matter to God. In judgment, his stature is the same as the rich man. And will the rich man be judged more harshly if he feels himself to be better? We can, with our human minds, make that judgment, right? Yet you dishonored that poor man. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Here's a, here the thought process is that if a man with more power can take advantage of those who have less. We can look at our situation even in our lifetime. We're coming through a time in our life where people have been without work and they've been without jobs, they have no money, and there was a moratorium that was put on by the federal government that said you can't throw people out of their apartments or their places where they live without, because they don't have money to pay for their housing. But yet the rich man has decided in many cases not to even follow what the government has asked to be merciful to those who don't have the opportunity to work. They're throwing them out of their housing. They're left to be homeless. That judgment is also from God on those people. Don't they blaspheme the noble name that was pronounced over you at your baptism? What does this mean? Who in whose name were we baptized? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the triune God. So they're falling under that. Indeed, if you keep the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. This seems rather simple when we think about it, but we're in every situation that we find ourselves in, we can fall under this category, one side or the other. So we don't want to be found. But if you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. It goes on in verse 10 to say, For whoever keeps the entire law yet fails in one point is guilty of breaking it all. So even in this really simple explanation of favoritism that we're looking at here this morning, we find that if we do this, because we're subject to our own flesh, we're subject to the world, we're subject to the devil, we have to keep fighting that. But look what it says. For whoever commit, keeps the entire law yet fails in one point is guilty of breaking it all. So you can say, well, I don't show favoritism, but in fact you do. You have broken all the laws. And if we look back at the Mosaic laws, we think about it, 660 plus laws. We fall under a terrible judgment in the mighty hand of God. Speak and act as those who will be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who hasn't shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So when we believe that Jesus Christ did that work on the cross for us, this is exactly what James is talking about here in this last verse. For judgment is without mercy to the one who hasn't shown mercy. 
Mercy triumphs over judgment. And we're going to look at the seventh chapter of Mark, starting with the 21st, 24th verse. This is also a form of judgment, if you will. These are two situations we're going to read to the end of the chapter. These are two situations that Jesus did on his journey. The first one is, this is after Jesus has started his ministry, and he has been preaching and talking to the Jewish people and lots of Pharisees that have come after him and, and been poking fun at him and causing problems for Jesus in terms of his ministry, perhaps for his person himself. So what does he say after he's talking to these people? It says in verse 24, He got up and departed from there to the region of Tyre and Sidon. These are places where they're Gentiles. They've not yet seen Jesus, but perhaps have heard of his preaching and his ministry and the miracles he's performed. He doesn't go to a crowd. He goes to a house. Up to this point, Jesus has been preaching mainly in the streets or in places in the synagogue, in the temple, where places people could gather, hundreds of people could gather. Sermon on the Mount was where 5,000 people were, right? He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. Why does Jesus go into a house and he doesn't want anyone to know he's there? He's looking for a little respite. He's looking for a little rest from the crowds, from the people pressing up against him. But he's also doing his work. And this work is interesting because of the way this transpires. This is also when we think about it in terms of judgment and how people would be looking on Jesus as what he's doing or looking at the woman in the situation where he's at with some sort of judgmental attitude. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, but he could not escape notice. Why? Because, like I said earlier, the people had heard about what he had done. Immediately, instead, immediately after hearing about him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit came and fell at his feet. Do you know that every place in the Bible and every place in the New Testament where a someone falls at Jesus' feet, he cannot help but help them. He is compelled to help them by mercy. Because we worship at the feet of Jesus. Now the woman was a Greek uh, Syrophoenician by birth. This was an area along the uh, Greek coast where most of the people were not Jewish. They had never heard of Jewish or they had never had an opportunity to see Jesus in person. And she kept asking him to drive the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, allow the children to be satisfied first because it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, Jesus is talking rather sternly to her. 
He's telling her that who's, who are the children he's talking about? The children of Abraham. Not just little kids, but the children of Abraham. Allow the children to be satisfied first because it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Who are the dogs? The people who aren't yet in the kingdom. And even Jesus is using a term of judgment here. But she replied to him, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. So this woman is not deterred by the statement that Jesus makes that she should go away because she isn't one of the children of Israel. She isn't one of the quote-unquote chosen ones. But she is falling under a situation where Jesus shows mercy even though he talks sternly to her. Verse 29 he told, but then he told her, because of this reply, you may go. The demon is gone out of your daughter. When she went back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, and the demon was gone. So the power of God does not necessarily work in, in the immediate effect right in front of Jesus. But it works because the power of God is everywhere. And Jesus commands this demon to be gone by telling her to go home. She answered him correctly. The children that are not yet in the kingdom will get crumbs from the table, which are the food that the Holy Spirit gives to us through the preaching of his word. Those crumbs satisfy those who take them and eat them. Some people will let them go and they'll be swept up and put in the garbage. But they're still the crumbs. Because even though we see the illustration of Jesus feeding the 5,000 on the mountain, how many baskets of leftovers did they pick up? To me, that signifies that the word of God will go on and on and on, even to the end of the world. And there will be stuff left over. It is up to those who are hungry to take that and put that in their heart, believe it, and fall at the feet of Jesus and ask him to forgive their sin. You see, I can say what all kinds of things about who Jesus is and what Jesus want you to do and how you should act and why you shouldn't be judgmental and all these things we could put together. But what do you have to do? You have to take that food. You have to take that food and you have to internalize what that Holy Spirit wants you to do and he wants you to become clean. He wants you to be part of his kingdom. Even here, she's a Gentile. Jesus hasn't yet been crucified. He shouldn't be preaching to her because his work has not been, his time has not yet come. But yet he is merciful. He will forgive. So then the next uh, scenario is that Jesus goes again 
after leaving the region of Tyre, and he went by the way of Sidon to the Sea of Galilee. Now he's going back towards his home through the region of the Decapolis. They brought to him a deaf man who also had a speech difficulty and begged Jesus to lay his hand on him. So this man, the way that is described here, if he was totally deaf from birth, he probably would not have been able to speak. But perhaps from some illness as a child or in his adulthood, has lost some of his hearing. And he's trying to speak based on what, how he remembers in his head how the words should go. And he's unintelligible. No one can understand what he's saying. Here again is a metaphor, if you will. When the deaf and the dumb haven't heard the word and they're trying to proclaim something unto those who they think they should be talking about, even the word of God, because Jesus said even the devil knows how to quote scripture. Those words are as they would be unintelligible to the Holy Spirit. They brought to him a deaf man who also had a speech difficulty and begged Jesus to lay his hand on him. But what does he do in verse 33? So he took him away from the crowd privately. Again, perhaps telling us that his time had not yet come. After putting his fingers in the man's ears and spitting, he touched his tongue. So he put his, hand, his fingers in the man's ears and he spit on his finger and he touched the man's tongue. What happens? Nothing happens yet. Then looking up into heaven, he sighed deeply. What does this mean? Is he weary? Is he tired? Does he feel he's put upon? He sighed deeply and said to him, Epipatha, that is, be opened. And immediately his ears were opened and his speech difficulty was removed. And he began to speak clearly. Then he ordered them to tell no one. But the more he would order them, the more they would proclaim it. They were extremely astonished and said, He has done everything well. He even makes deaf people hear and people unable to speak talk. Let's look at this again as a metaphor. Let's look at this last verse. They were extremely astonished and said, He does everything well. What does He do? He is working the will of God. He even makes deaf people hear. So you and I have had the same opportunity. Our ears have finally heard the Holy Spirit talking to us. And we have taken those words in and we have let them come into our heart. And we realize the state of, that we're in and we've come to Jesus and we've had our sins forgiven. He makes deaf people hear. We who formerly could not understand or know the will of God in terms of the, what the Holy Spirit wants for us can now hear that. And the people unable to speak talk. Who would that be? I could say it could be me. It could be Sven. It could be 
any one of you sitting here in this congregation, hearing the word of God, having your sins forgiven, and being able to talk about it, being able to put it out for someone else, not because we're eloquent, just like we looked at the man in the, in the gathering. We could be the man with the poor clothes, but yet we're so rich in, our, in, in the opportunity through the Holy Spirit that we are professing. We are telling people about Jesus and not necessarily standing out as a spectacle because this is what Jesus does here twice. Where is he when he uh, takes the unclean spirit out of the little girl? He's in Tyre. He's away from the Jews. He went there for a rest, and even those people crowded around him. And do you think those who saw the work that he did with this woman, whose little daughter was possessed by the demon, do you think they had some opportunity to understand the work that Jesus was doing on this earth and want to know more about him and want to follow him? So this is why when Jesus tells these people, then he, and if we go back to verse 36 here in this chapter 7, then he ordered them to tell no one. And then in my Bible, there's a comma. But the more he would order them, comma, the more they would proclaim it. You cannot help but tell people or show people the goodness that you've had through the Holy Spirit. We should all be so joyful and so ready to share this that people know what the work of Jesus is. So when we think about the crumbs that fall from the table, when we think about that in terms of bread, when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, we think about what we're here for this morning, and that would be communion. So when we gather together, because the Holy Spirit has talked to us and wants us to be part of his kingdom, let's be joyful. Let's be happy. And let's be thankful. Our sins are forgiven in the blood of Jesus. Why? Because we asked him to forgive us. Because he's happy to do that. Just like he is happy to know that all of you are here listening to the word of God this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.